Well, for the past six weeks, we have been kind of continuing our evangelistic focus that we began this past summer. Again, we, we joined the ABFs this past summer, and we, we looked at personal evangelism. We carried it through into the fall ministry of our mission awareness and a lot of the emphasis on reaching our Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We had Doug, Doug Pollock, a special speaker, come and challenge us concerning our God space, the people that we come in contact with every single day, day in and day out, and how to develop relations with them to be able to share Christ. And tonight, um, we're going to take our uh, last look at the God Space Bible study. It's our final Bible study. Um, but during this six weeks emphasis on the God Space, um, we've been looking at different evangelistic encounters that Christ had when he was here on this earth. Um, we saw him interacting with a lawyer, with a Pharisee, with Nicodemus. Last week we saw Christ focus on a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. Um, and as far as, as explanation and, and dialogue goes, her, Christ's interaction with this Samaritan woman is probably one of the, the longest dialogues that we have in the Gospels. Um, you know, almost a whole chapter is designated to, to his interaction with this woman. And so actually, instead of going on to another encounter that Christ had, I want to take the, the second half of the story of Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman because it's going to kind of give us a good conclusion to this emphasis uh, that we've been looking at for the last six months or so. So let me start by recapping uh, for those who weren't necessarily here last week. Remember that Christ was traveling from Jerusalem, which is down south, traveling back to Galilee, the region of Galilee. And to do that, as he's traveling back north, there's a region called Samaria. Now, a lot of the Jews, because they despised the Samaritans, because they were kind of a, a half-breed race, um, a lot of times they would go around Samaria. They wouldn't even step a foot in their region. Well, that added two or three days onto your journey if you had to go all the way around Samaria. So Christ is cutting straight through Samaria. It's about a, a, a three days journey. Again, these people are despised by the Jews because they're half Jew, half Gentile. They had intermarried. They were also half-breed in religion because they kind of tried to, to marry Judaism with paganism and idolatry, and it all got mixed up together. So Jesus is traveling through there, and he stops outside the city of Sychar at Jacob's well. All of his disciples, they go into town. They're, they're going to get some supplies. It is then that Jesus meets the woman from Samaria who is an outcast. She's an outcast from her people because of her morality. She had been married over five times. She was living with a man that wasn't her husband presently. And so Christ, the, the, his interaction with her is, is fascinating. Um, we highlighted four points of their encounter uh, that, that kind of stood out to us. Well, the first one was that Christ asked her for a favor. We often talk about service evangelism, um, you know, doing something for somebody else to kind of open up their door to be able to have a relationship with them and to, to talk with them. But Christ does the exact opposite here. He asks her for a favor. Again, remember, she's an outcast. 
Um, this would be like us going down to the homeless and asking them for a favor. I mean, they, socially, nobody interacted with her, and so how surprised she was that suddenly somebody would ask something of her. And he uses this to open up the door. Second thing is Christ turned their conversation to the spiritual. If you're not there, but uh, turn to John 14, or John chapter 4 and verse 14. Christ says, but whoever drinks of this water that he's been talking about, that I will give him shall thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So suddenly this, this common interaction they have about getting well water from the well, satisfying a thirst, he turns it into a spiritual encounter and ultimately to share that he is the Christ. We looked at two words that were very important to somebody's salvation, and they're the words ask and the words given. We need to ask, and when we ask, God gives us eternal life. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. To become a Christian, you need to ask, and God will give. And then the final point we looked at is we have a need to deal with our sin. Salvation being saved is about our sins being paid for, our debts being paid for. Remember we said you can't accept the good news until you accept the bad news, that we're all sinners. We're separated from God. We're in need of forgiveness. And so Christ has this interaction with her. We're going to pick up the story in verse 27 as Christ's disciples are returning from town. And so if you'll take your Bibles, if you would, and stand with me in verse 27. We'll read down through verse 42. Stand together. It says at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman yet no one said what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ is it? They went out of the city and they were coming to him. Now meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying Rabbi eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him And because of the word of the woman who testified that he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. 
may be seated. There it is at the end of verse 42. The whole purpose of Christ's coming, the whole purpose of Christ's interaction with the Samaritans, this one indeed is the Savior of the world. What a statement. Remember, this is very early on in Christ's ministry. So this is the very first great proclamation of, of who Jesus Christ truly is and why he came to earth. Now, I thought about this this past week, and you, you got to ask yourself the question, how is it that this obscure group of Samaritan villagers are God's chosen instrument to declare to the world that Jesus is the one, that Jesus is the Savior. It wasn't the chief priests. It wasn't the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It wasn't the, the scribes or the lawyers or the rabbis. He didn't even have the population of the Jewish people make this first proclamation. But these rejected outcast, despised, hated Samaritans. So I ask myself, why not the Jews? Why didn't, why didn't God choose his own people to make this proclamation? Well, folks, by the time of Christ, the people of God had become a nation of Jonah's. They were spiritually arrogant. They were spiritually self-absorbed. You remember when, when, when God told Jonah to go to preach repentance to the, to the Gentile nation of, of Nineveh? He didn't want to go. Why? Why didn't he want to go? Because he knew that God was a God of mercy. That's why he didn't want to go. Because he didn't want to see him get saved. He didn't want to see him get redeemed. He wanted to see them get punished. Matter of fact, when they finally did repent of their, of their sins, when they finally did give their life to, to Christ, it, it says in Jonah 4 too, Jonah, he's talking to the Lord, and he says he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said to you while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah said, I knew it, God. You know, you're just too forgiving. You're too gracious. You're too compassionate. And I knew if I went, you know, your nature would kick in, and when the people turn to you, and it says the, the whole nation, even up to the king, they tore their clothes and, and they repented in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord. He says, I knew that you would forgive them. Jonah was given a mission by God to be a missionary to Nineveh. Not until God, you know, rerouted him through a big fish did he even decide to go. And even then he could not rejoice at the great work of God's forgiveness in somebody else's life. And Israel was a called out nation. They were a nation that was supposed to be a light to the world. Through the Jewish people, the, the world was supposed to see the working of God 
and understand about a Savior and understand about without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin and understand that one day a Messiah would come who would save the world and save each individual that turned to them. And their mission, the whole reason that they were called out was to testify to the world about a Savior, about a Messiah. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve ones of Israel? I will also make you, catch this, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God says, it's not enough that I'm just calling the people out to myself, but I'm making you a light. I want all the nations, all the Gentiles to know about me. And folks, I tell you, the the Jews at the time of Christ, they would have loved to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of Israel, but not that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is the Savior of all men and women that come to him. And if we are not careful, we can become a church just like this. We can become a church that is full of Jonah's. You know, we love to talk about what God did did for us, what Jesus did for us. We love to talk about he is our Savior. But but we ignore the calling in Matthew 28 where it says, Go therefore and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. We can talk about that verse a lot. You know, and, and, and we all believe that verse. But we may not say it directly, but in our priorities, we speak what our truth is. In the burden of our heart for those that are around us, our care that we have, we speak what we fill our time with. We speak our support of our missionaries the burden that we have for others to know Christ, we speak. I mean, we may, you know, we wouldn't come right out and say it, but certainly by the priorities of our life, we are showing the world what's important. I want to go back. I want to go back to this proclamation that the Samaritans made. In verse 42, it says, This one is indeed the Savior of the world. I want you to think about that for just a moment here that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. He's not just the Savior of Clark County or Ohio or the United States, but he is the Savior of Europe. He is the Savior of Africa, of all Russians, of Chinese, of Mexicans, you know, Canadians. Black, white, brown, it doesn't matter. He is the Savior. He is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one Savior. He is the only Savior of the world. There is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. There is none other. And in this politically correct environment that we live in, you hear so much about how we have to give equal honor and respect to every single religion that's out there. That is wrong. We do not. Certainly, we need to love every person. 
Certainly, we need to respect every person. Christ, you know, modeled that for us. But anything that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the savior of the world, anything that is outside of that is a satanic religion. All of them. There is one savior. It is only Jesus Christ. And, and, and that is a message that we need to carry. There is only one Savior of the world. There is only one way that you can be saved, and that is by grace alone through faith, apart from your works. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what he did upon the cross. That's the only gospel. That's the only message. And this is beyond significant, that they came to the place and they understood this one is the Savior of the world, not one of the saviors of the world or one of the many ways that God is going to save the world, but he is the savior. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, that word means our Lord cometh. Makes that great declaration. We don't, you know, there, we aren't all in these equal religions out there, all pursuing God in the same way. The truth is, it is only Jesus Christ and him alone. And the Samaritans came to the place. They hadn't been part of, of, of religion. They had been part of all sorts of rituals. But they came face to face with the Savior. And he said he is the one Savior of the world. Now, there is one other quick point that I want to highlight about this whole interaction with the Samaritans, the Samaritan woman. I want to talk to you a little bit about the providence of God. Okay? What is the providence of God? What are we talking about here? Well, that's a theological word. It means that God controls all the contingencies. God controls all the circumstances, all the events of our life, and he works them to converge to fulfill his sovereign will. And if you take a look at Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, it, 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 it is brimming with examples of the providence of God, how Jesus Christ draws people to himself. I mean, you know, just him stopping outside the village of Sychar, that's a very small village. And there are plenty of villages that he could have stopped along the way. But he stops at Sychar. He stops at Jacob's well. At just the right time of day to meet this woman, not a time of day that, you know, all the women would be out there, but because she was an outcast, she was coming in the heat of the day, out way beyond the town to draw her water. And Jesus is there at just the right, right time. The disciples are gone, and, and they're not returning until the exact moment that, that this woman realizes that Jesus is the Savior. I love that verse 26 where Jesus said to her, he declares to her, I who speak to you am he. And then verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. I mean, right at that point, just the, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God working. If they'd have come a half an hour earlier, you know, this wouldn't have happened. A half an hour later, you know, what he's going to be teaching them wouldn't have happened. If they'd have taken a different route through Samaria, if they'd stopped at a different village, you know, none of this would have happened. But God ordained this moment, this time, 
this place in order to save one woman, an outcast, a woman who was forsaken, a woman who was a sinner, and ultimately through this woman to reach an entire village to come to the place to realize that he is the Savior. The truth of God's providence, as we see it here, the truth is that it is at work in all of our lives as well. Matter of fact, if you are here today and you are not yet a Christian, you know, you, you might be religious or you, you know, you're, I, I, I believe that there's a God out there. You might be pursuing it. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church, but if you have not yet made that personal decision to say yes to Jesus, yes, his death on the cross to forgive your sins, if you haven't yet embraced that and accepted that and let him be your Savior and the Lord of your life, Folks, I'm here to tell you it's not an accident that God has moved events in your life for you to be here today, for you to hear this message. Whether this is going to be the moment that you open your heart to him, but he wants that seed to be planted. He is working in your life to bring you to the place of becoming a child of his. He is moving in your life. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, as a Christian, God is working, God is moving in your life to shape you and to mold you into Christ-likeness. Every single trial that has come into your life, every single struggle, every single victory that crosses your path, right now God is trying to do something in your life. He's trying to take a, a, a rough edge you know, get it rounded off, or, or he's trying to prepare you for a coming moment, or uh, teaching you a lesson that you're going to use down the road here. God is at work in your life right now, in your circumstances. Have you ever considered that? Whatever it is that you're going through right now, whatever struggle, whatever trial, whatever blessing, God's providence is at work in it, because he wants to do something in your life with that. Let me give you a bunch of verses for this. Hebrews 13 says, Now the God of peace, who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is... He is equipping us in every good thing to do his will, working in our lives so that we might be doing things that are pleasing in his sight. He goes on in Proverbs, 6, or in Proverbs 16, verse 4. It says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's the providence of God. He's made everything for its own purpose. Everything that's happening has a purpose. Hebrews 10, 36 a great declaration says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you might receive what was promised. When you have done the will of God, that's a great declaration. We are exhorted to do the will of God so that we might receive what is promised. So I just want to ask, you know, as we talk about the providence of God here, can you step back and can you just trace God's hand working and moving in your life? 
Maybe right now you can't see the circumstance, but if you look back a little farther, you can see how God has used circumstances at just the right time to have you at just the right place or prepare you for just the right moment. Well, what you're going through now is preparing you for that moment to come. And, 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 and again, like it says in Proverbs 10.36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you might receive what is promised. To, to God use us in your providence to bring about your will. Okay, let's step back into our story for just a moment here. In verse 28, it says, So the woman left her water pot, and she went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city, and they were coming to him. Let's talk about that for just a moment here. One of the surest signs of salvation, one of the surest signs that a person is genuinely saved is the overwhelming desire to tell other people what happened. That's the surest sign that a sinner has been saved, been redeemed, is that desire to tell other people what happened. I mean, think about it like this. If you want a a free trip to Hawaii or if you want a new car, you'd be telling everybody about it. 30 years ago, in, in a drawing in the, the area town that we shopped, and I put my name in a box, and my name got drawn, and I won a snowmobile. Isn't that great? I won a snowmobile. So it was just before Christmas, so I went in to pick the snowmobile up, and the snowmobile place, the place that sold them, had a little box there, and I signed my name, I put it in, and a week later I get called, and I won a snowmobile jacket. And folks, I told everybody about it. I mean, I was excited about what had happened. We live today in a culture that, that posts even the most mundane things that happen in our life. Can you imagine what should happen when a life is redeemed, when a life is, is forgiven, when a child of, of God is born? Can you imagine that, that need to tell other people? That's a sure sign that, that, that something has happened different in a person's heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And that's what this woman did. Christ redeemed her, Christ forgave her, and she couldn't do anything other than go and tell other people what God had done in her heart. She was excited about it. You know, I, I, was, I was going over my message this morning, and, and I will, you know, how can we apply this? I, I want to challenge you guys, you guys that are on Facebook out there. I did this this summer. Right? I challenge you to post your salvation story. Post how you came to know Christ. God can use it. I've only posted one thing in my life on Facebook, and it was my testimony. I challenge you to do that. Who knows what God will use? God used this woman to reach a whole village and what had happened to her. I just challenge you. You know, talk about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And again, you know, let's not overlook what happened to this woman's sin and shame. Remember when she came to Christ, when she went out to this well, she was an outcast. 
And that's how she even saw herself, surprised that, that he would even talk to her, that he would even ask of her a favor, you know, her a woman and let alone a Samaritan. So she is downcast, but suddenly, when Jesus Christ touches her life, all of that changes. In verse 29, she says, you know, she runs into her village and says, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. I mean, how many times had all the things that she had done been thrown into her face about what a horrible person she was and how undeserving she was? And now at the touch of Jesus Christ, suddenly all of that sin, all of that shame is gone. And, and she's out there talking to the whole village. He knew everything that I've done. She's excited, I mean, uh, what Christ has done in her life. Folks, this is called a cleansed conscience. And this is what Christ does with our sin when he redeems us. Yes, he, he pays the price for our sin. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. His blood is an atonement. It's a covering for our lives where God looks at us and he sees Christ. He doesn't see us. He doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ. But there's another thing that happens. Our conscience is cleansed from the things that we have done. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He goes on in Hebrews 10, 22, says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 tells us, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why that woman could run back to town it didn't change the fact that she had been married five times and she was living in an adulterous relationship at that moment. But Christ cleansed all those things, removed all those things, and now they're, they're, they're a springboard for her to tell other people about Jesus Christ. You know, this woman's shame became a springboard to identify with people what God has done in her life. And that is the power of a genuine, heartfelt, personal testimony. And if you are a Christian here today, each one of us has one of those. You have a testimony. You have a story to tell. And in God's great providence, he has saved you. And you have a story to tell that God can use to open the door into other people's lives so that they know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We are called to proclaim that truth. We are called to proclaim that message. And that's the challenge I want to leave with us as we close out this whole focus that we have had on evangelism. We have been saved for a reason. We have been saved for a purpose. Just like Israel was saved, they were called out people that God could work in their lives in a way that they could proclaim them to the nations around them. You have been saved for a purpose so that every single person you come in contact with might have contact with Jesus Christ. Other family members, people in your community, you know, people who, places that you go to eat, places you go to get gas, 
God is going to ordain these, these providential moments for us if we are willing to be able to be used. Matthew chapter 5 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People should see my life. They should see the difference in my life that Jesus Christ has made, the difference in your life. That even without words, that people know there's something different about you. And it might cause them to ask you about that difference. Or you might get that chance to proclaim to them the difference. But we are a light, and that light's never to be hidden. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to proclaim Christ to the world around us. One last thing I, I want to point out here about our readiness. Christ said to his disciples in verse 35, remember, here's the whole scene. The, the Samaritan woman has gone back, told the town people, uh, and all the town people are coming out now to Jesus. During that time, Christ is talking to his disciples. He's using this as a, this providential moment as, as a teaching moment to them. And he comes down to verse 35 and says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. When they looked up, they saw the Samaritan village, Sychar, all coming out to see them. That was the harvest that Jesus Christ was talking about. Now we have heard this verse hundreds of times rightly tied to evangelism. But I want to point out to you, I want you to remember who this field was to the disciples. This field that was white unto the harvest were the Samaritans. The Jews hated them. You know, they were, they were sacrilegious. You know, they were, they were half-breeds. And they didn't want anything to do with them. And perhaps, at times, our lack of having a harvest as Christians can be attributed to the fact that we're looking in the wrong field. We're looking at fields that are convenient. We're looking at people that are like us, that are desirable. You know, those people that we like. And in so many ways, we have that same attitude of Jonah, of who we want to be a light to, who we want to come to the Savior. You know, this is the verse that says, look to the fields, look to the fields that Christ looked to. And I think if we started looking to those fields, maybe we would begin to see more of a harvest. Who is it that Christ came for? It says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, it's a trustworthy statement desiring full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
That's who we're called to reach. That is our white harvest. We need to find it in our God space. What is that harvest that Christ is saying to us? Look up, that person that you, know, you don't even notice. That person that you cross paths with, whatever, that you know, serves you your food or gets you your newspaper or your coffee or whatever it might be. Look up. Those people are hurting. Those people need to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And in God's providence, he has ordained for you to be there in his life. It was a challenge to his disciples. Open your eyes to what God is trying to do around you. They would have missed it. They would have missed this woman. They would have missed this opportunity. They would have missed this village. Because they still had the attitude of Jonah. I pray that we don't have that same attitude. Father, I, I ask you, uh, as only you can, to search our hearts. Lord, I open myself up to be honest before you. And Lord, if you see you know, these hearts, these attitudes within me, I pray that you will weed them out. Father, help me to see people as you see them. The same way you saw me, Father, a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, even this week, I pray that you will bring someone to my attention that I have overlooked. God, that you want to reach for your name. And I will thank you for your power, your power working through me, Father, to share my story of your redemption. Thank you in thy son's name we pray. Amen.